We are in Ephesians chapter 4, looking at verses 1 through 6 this evening, talking about the unity that we have in God. So tonight we are going to consider the unity that is to be maintained among God's people. Through the redemptive work of Christ, God has brought a people together to worship and serve the Lord. It is extremely important that we evidence that unity so that God's purpose will be fulfilled and God will be glorified. But what is that unity look like? On what ground is that unity based? How is that unity to be maintained? How will that unity be beneficial? All questions that need to be considered as we work through this passage and passages to come. So theme, tonight we consider Paul's encouragement to the people of God to evidence the unity that God has established. So first, Paul exhorts the Ephesian believers to unity. Paul understands that unity does not come without a cost. He says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord. We saw that back in verse 1 of Ephesians 3 as well where Paul was a prisoner as a result of seeking to reach the Gentiles. For this reason I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles. When we were in chapter 3, we emphasized that uh, he was a prisoner ultimately to Christ. It was Christ's doing, but the purpose for his imprisonment was the sharing of the gospel with the Gentiles. That's what brought him into opposition with the Jewish leaders, which ultimately resulted in his imprisonment. So he knew that there is a cost that it was associated with trying to promote unity. The point is that Paul made personal sacrifices for the sake of others, and so should we. Uh, it is difficult, we're going to see in this passage, for Christians to maintain unity. It isn't as easy as it may sound, and it requires uh, a real sacrificial spirit on our part to bring it off. B, the calling of God is a call to unity. God is reconciling all things to himself and as a result, all things to each other. Back in Ephesians chapter 1, and of course this keeps building all the way through the book of Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 1 verse 9, it says, "...making known to us the mystery of his will." according to his purpose which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time. And now we're told what that will is to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. So God's purpose in the redemptive work of Christ is to unite all things in him. And the first thing I'd like to point out to you in verse 10 of chapter 1, it's not on your sheet, but is this simple preposition to unite all things in him. And I would point out that it does not say unite all things to him. It's more than, than just our relationship to Christ, but it, it's talking about our actual unity with Christ, that, that we become a part of his kingdom. In 1 Thessalonians 2.12, we're exhorted each one of you and encouraged and charge you to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom 
and glory. So when God saved us, it was to transform us or, or to uh, deliver us from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light, from the kingdom of the evil one to the, to the kingdom of Christ. And as a part of that kingdom, we share in our sonship with our fellow believers. So we're all part of the same kingdom. And we have a responsibility to act like we're all part of the same kingdom. So see, the Ephesians are exhorted, conduct themselves in a way that is consistent with and glorifies their calling. Ephesians 4.1. Therefore, a prisoner of the Lord urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling. And if you notice, that exact same phrase is found in 1 Thessalonians 2.12 at the top of the page. We exhort each one of you, encourage you, and charge you to walk in a manner worthy of God. Worthy of God. Worthy of the calling. Lincoln, uh, Andrew uh, Lincoln in the word biblical commentary says this. Um, the appeal to live worthily of God's calling presupposes that God's gracious initiative requires a continuous human response and that his call bestows both high privilege and high responsibility. Now I look at this statement that we're to walk in a manner worthy of the calling. The Christian's walk is a central element of the book of Ephesians. It comes up repeatedly. It's stated negatively how we should not walk in Ephesians 4.17. Now I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as Gentiles do. And uh, there the uh, Gentiles are viewed as non-believers. Uh, as believers, we walk differently than we walked when we weren't believers. There's a change of behavior. There's a change of relationship to God's people. There's a change of relationship to Christ. So there is a tremendous transformation in our lives. Stated positively, how we should walk. Well, in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10, it says, we are his workmanship, creating Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So this walk is characterized by good works, uh, activities, efforts that are pleasing to God and a benefit to others. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 2, we find out we're to walk in love. In Ephesians chapter 5, verse 8, we walk as children of the light, meaning that we walk consistent with the revelation of God, the, the light that we're given, the understanding of God's truth that has been imparted to us. And we walk in accordance with that understanding of truth. Ephesians 5.15, look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise. So not only are we knowledgeable, but then we make good choices with the knowledge that we have. Uh, God gives us the knowledge not simply to be able to beat everybody else at Bible trivia, but the knowledge that we are given by God is to make us wise in the decisions that we make in the manner in which we live our lives. Secondly, in this aspect of what it means to walk worthily of the Lord, the Christian's walk should adorn the gospel of Christ. That means it should make 
the gospel of Christ even more appealing. Uh, a beautiful woman may adorn herself with jewels, with diamonds, and the thought is it will enhance her beauty. To adorn the gospel is to enhance the beauty of the gospel. You say, well, how can you improve upon the gospel? Well, to make it more attractive uh, so that when people see a believer, they are attracted to that lifestyle. They admire it. They find it to be pleasing. They find it to be beautiful. Uh, they respect it. They honor it. That is all consistent with the, the gospel, honoring the gospel, walking in a manner worthy of the gospel, adorning the gospel of Christ. Um, Titus 2, 9 and 10 says, bondservants are to be submissive to their own masters and everything. They're to be self-pleasing, not argumentative. Uh, Well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. Unfortunately, you probably have heard that statement that says, if that's a Christian, I don't want to be one. This is the exact opposite. If that's what a Christian is, that's what I want to be. Uh, that we are people that are looked up to, that we're admired, we're respected, uh, that people uh, find us to be truthful, responsible, reliable, dependable, they want to be around us. D, Paul describes the character traits that are consistent with our call to unity and which will actually promote unity. So these are the characteristics that promote unity. First, we're to have a loneliness of mind, Ephesians 4, 2, with all humility, with all humility. This is the manner in which we're to walk, with all humility. The word humility is literally loneliness of mind, it is to be contrasted with arrogance or high-mindedness. It is not to be self-promoting or self-seeking, not to see oneself better than or deserving more than others. Loneliness of mind. The word all reaches to all situations, experiences, times, and people with all humility. Uh, that that is the way in which we are to conduct ourselves in every circumstance. It being humble. Uh, Romans 12, 16 says, live in harmony with one another. How are you going to achieve that? Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Uh, the idea is not to view others as beneath ourselves, that, that somehow we are contaminated by being around them or they don't deserve our attention or their time. We're too important for them. Uh, they don't matter to us. They're insignificant. Uh, sometimes uh, people are drawn to those that are uh, more wealthy uh, because they think that somehow that's going to be advantageous to them, that they're going to benefit from that person's wealth, or they're, they're drawn to people who are good-looking or attractive. There are people that it's just easy to associate with. And then there are those that are less easy to associate with. And there might even be things about them that turn us off. Uh, I had the uh, situation when I was in fourth grade that uh, there was a, a boy in my class 
that uh, I don't know what his problem was, but he obviously had some kind of physical malady that he gave off a bad odor. And it wasn't just body odor. It wasn't just that he hadn't washed. I mean, he had some kind of physical malady. And uh, I was placed, you know, we had assigned seating, and I sat right across from him. And it made my eyes water to, to sit next to him. Uh, I didn't look for him at recess. Uh, he didn't become my best buddy. In the people of God, we are not just to be on the lookout for the attractive, the people that we just uh, normally associate with, but we're to be very mindful of those that we are very unlikely to associate with, other than the fact that they are a child of God, and as such, they become very important to us. The second characteristic is to be considerate of others. Gentleness. Again, quoting from the word biblical commentary, gentleness involves the courtesy, considerateness, and willingness to waive one's rights that come from seeking the common good without being concerned for personal reputation or gain. So just taking other people into consideration. You know, just like on a Fellowship Sunday, uh, if you see that there's almost nothing left of something that you uh, hesitate to take a huge portion, but you're thinking about someone who might come after you that would like to have that same uh, piece of pie or whatever. But, uh, you know, uh, that sounds so uh, trite, but yet in life it is a matter of just trying to think about other people and how our actions affect them and trying to be considerate of their own situation. Third characteristic is to be long-tempered, long-tempered, with patience, with patience. I like that term long-tempered, for it's the opposite of being short-tempered. We all know what that is, uh, wearing our feelings on our sleeves. Something says, some, someone says something to us and we fly off the handle, quick to react, well, this is the exact opposite of that. It's to be, to be long-tempered. Uh, again, from the word biblical commentary, this ability to make allowance for others' shortcomings, this tolerance of others' exasperating behavior is a fruit of the Spirit, and again, a quality essential for communal living. Now we have an intensification of what this patience involves. Ephesians 4, 2. And with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. Bearing with one another in love is an amplification of what is meant by patience. The writer knows that in the midst of tensions and conflicts, the patience required will not be passive resignation, but the positive attitude towards others that we will expand on later. In other words, there is an effort that has to be put forth in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 32, it says, Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. So bearing with one another includes the idea of bearing with their sinful behavior. Bearing with their sinful behavior. Sometimes 
in the body of Christ, you will encounter individuals who may have wronged you, injured you in some way, or because of them you have suffered a loss that someone can really have done you wrong, as it were. And we are, for the sake of the unity of the body of Christ, we're to put up with it. We're to shoulder it. We are to take it. Uh, we are to continue to love with that person, forgive that person, welcome that person, even as Christ has forgiven us. We are not to be holding grudges. We are not to be seeking to get even. We are to prize unity above our own situation. And it goes so far as in 1 Corinthians, it says that you should not take a brother to court. You should not sue a brother or sister in Christ, but rather suffer the wrong. Okay? If, if they've done something and, and you've actually lost a sum of money, the scripture says, don't take them to court. Assume that loss. Assume that loss. So you can see how unity carries a cost associated with it. You can see how there's an effort that has got to be put forth if we're going to be able to maintain this unity. So the application. First, the scriptures anticipate the difficulties that will be involved with God's people dwelling together in unity. Let me say that again. The scriptures anticipate the difficulties that will be involved with God's people dwelling together in unity. You can expect problems. I can't tell you how many times I've heard people say, Christians shouldn't have these kinds of problems. Christians shouldn't have these issues. Churches shouldn't have these issues. We should just be able to get along with no problems, whatever. The reason Ephesians 4 is here is because we are going to have problems apart from the grace of God with others. With others. And sometimes Christians enter in with naivety. Just like people who are going to enter into marriage. Uh, I have a policy that uh, I meet no less than six times with people before they get married. And I've had the, the privilege of marrying an awful lot of people now. And uh, we sit down and, and I uh, want to talk to them. And one of the, the things that I usually want to talk with them about is problem resolution. How are you going to work your way through, through problems? How are you going to communicate, et cetera? And uh, it's very common for them to kind of look at me and say, well, we're not going to have any problems. We love each other. I've come to the conclusion that a lot of premarital counseling is wasted because people say, oh, I'm not going to. So I've taken the approach now that I want to meet with people before they're married, and then I want to meet with them after they're married. And so come see me in the next six months, and let's talk about these very same things, all right? And uh, after you've experienced married life together for a little bit of time, 
and you realize that maybe there are some little tensions that are going to start creeping up. Well, there's a naivety when it comes to the church. It's a challenge, people. It's a challenge. And we all have to step up to it. We, we all have to meet by it and not be disillusioned. As though it isn't going to be a challenge. Number two, there will be clashes of character, attitudes, and actions. Three, none of which are to be allowed to affect our commitment to the Lord and to one another. We are not to allow the clashes of character, attitudes, and actions to affect our commitment to the Lord or our commitment to one another. That commitment is to rise above. And it doesn't mean that you just sweep these things under the rug. It means that you deal with them. You, you resolve them. You grow. You create a bond with each other. You experience God's grace together, forgiving one another, etc. And as we work our way through Ephesians, it addresses these things in very practical ways. E. We're to make every effort to guard and protect the unity that is produced by the Holy Spirit. We're to make every effort. Ephesians 4.3, it says, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit. This word eager has two, that's supposed to be T-W-O, two main emphases. The first is to be quick or hasten. Uh, we're, we're not to allow a dust to grow or uh, under our feet. We are to be quick to hasten, uh, to deal with issues and situations. And the second is to be zealous, making every effort imaginable, uh, doing whatever it takes, all right? Uh, going the extra mile. You know all the uh, cliches. But the point here is, again, that you may be rebuffed the first time. You may receive a cold shoulder for an extended period of time. But you, you just continue on with a spirit of long-suffering, a spirit of patience, uh, allowing time to heal wounds, etc. So it, it's, again, talking about this, this effort that we are putting forth. Uh, we are to guard and protect the unity, eager to maintain the unity. First, we're to be careful that we do not allow anything to stain or weaken that unity. And secondly, we're not to allow inconsequential things or irritants to become divisive. Inconsequential things or irritants. Things that bother us, things that annoy us, things that upset us, things that we don't like are not to enter into our commitment to one another and our commitment to Christ, okay? We all encounter things we don't like. We all encounter things that are unpleasant. We all encounter situations in which our feelings are hurt. That is no reason to turn our back on the Lord or to turn our back on our brother and sister in Christ. We work through it. Just as, hopefully, husbands and wives work through situations rather than divorce. And so we shouldn't leave. We shouldn't divide over 
inconsequential things like that. Number three, the unity is, uh, excuse me, it should read, the unity has already been established by the Holy Spirit's having made us one. For notice it says eager to maintain the unity. Uh, to maintain is different than to create. We are not to create unity. We are not to produce unity. We are to maintain unity. So the first is, it's important to understand that we do, and unfortunately there's a word missing there that's not, and it's extremely important word, not. We do not establish or create the unity that exists among believers. Two, God establishes that unity through the Holy Spirit. He has made us one. When God saved us, he brought us into his family. For many has received him, to them gave he power to become the children of God. If you are a child of God tonight, having believed in Lord Jesus Christ, then everyone else who sits here and who has believed in the Lord Jesus Christ is your brother or your sister. You don't make them your brother or your sister. They are your brother and your sister. You don't make them a part of your family. They are a part of your family. What we're to do is to make sure that we act like family, that we act like they're our brother and our sister, and we're committed to them like we are committed to our brother and our sister. And, and if you're not committed to your familiar brother and sister, that creates some issues, but we need to work through, and we are to emulate and, most importantly, maintain the unity which the Spirit has produced. Number four, the unity of the Spirit is seen in the peaceful bond that we have to one another, the bond of peace, the bond of peace. What is meant by that? Well, according to, uh, I think I quoted again, we're biblical on this, did I? Yes, I did. Uh, the bond of peace, the means of maintaining and demonstrating the unity of the Spirit is through peace, which has a bonding effect. That may be true. Uh, there are seven different ways that you can understand a genitive uh, in, uh, in Greek. A genitive is this phrase using of, the preposition of. In Greek, there's no preposition there. It's a, it's a genitive, and, and you've got to figure out if it's a genitive, a source, or whatever. And uh, I think it's better to see the emphasis of the bond of peace as a descriptive genitive. That is the bond that the Holy Spirit produces is a peaceful bond. I don't think that it's saying that the bond is maintained by peace, but rather that it's saying the bond is a peaceful bond. That's how it, it's seen. That's, that's how it glorifies the Lord Jesus Christ. Although I wouldn't argue strongly against that. For certainly... Uh, at the end here, thus to be argumentative and dismissive does not glorify our calling, nor is it consistent with our calling. Uh, you could also argue it's going to work against our calling, and that would certainly be true, 
But to me, the emphasis here is about manifesting the beauty of that call. And you see, the real sad thing about divisiveness and disunity is it just brings a black mark against God's people. We don't look any different from the world. Our commitment doesn't provide an, an example. It's not exemplary. It's not unique. Then we're just acting like everybody else acts. And we're just doing what everybody else does. And while we can shake our heads and say it's understandable, it certainly isn't glorifying to God and it's not what God desires of us. Secondly, the ground of the Christian unity. What is it that we have in common? What is it that we're to guard and protect? See, when we're talking about unity, those two questions become very important. What is it that we have in common? What do we have in common? And so often, the church, when I say the church, I'm talking capital C, I'm talking Christendom, I'm talking about Christians' attitudes. So often, people seek to promote unity by having a very narrow approach and appeal so that there is a commonality that is other than that of the Lord. For example, you know, small groups where everyone has little children so that you all have the same experience, you're all going through the same thing, you're all changing diapers, you're all going through that. Or it's just a college and career age group and everybody's going to college and everybody's that that same ilk, and they're experiencing the same difficulties in life, the same trials, they're, they're worried about getting married, and, and they have so much in common. But the commonality is not on those outward expressions. It's not about trying to seek out people that are just like you. And then having something for everybody, you know? We have, we have something for the widows, we have something for the... And I'm not saying that there isn't a place for that, but I'm saying that the Christian unity goes far beyond just a shared, common, natural experience of people the same age, going through the same trials, the same difficulties, the same hardships. We're talking about people who are, who are 80, relating to people who are, who are teens, we're talking about people that come from different economic stratus, those that have a lot of money and those that are pretty poor. We're talking about those that have jobs and those who don't have jobs. We're talking about a unity that is of a different ilk of nature than that of the world. So notice the repeated reference to one. In Ephesians 4, 4 through 6, I'm just going to read it, then I'll go back and dissect it. First, there is one body, 
Ephesians 4, 4. One spirit. Ephesians 4, 5. Uh, excuse me, Ephesians 4, 4. One hope. Verse 5. One Lord. One faith. One baptism. One God and Father of all. That is what we're to maintain. That is what we are to guard. That is what we are to protect. That is the unity of which we are called. So that there is but one body, there is but one spirit, there is one Lord, there is one faith, there is one baptism, one God and Father of all. So let's go back and dissect that. First, there is one people of God. One people of God. One body. B, there is, there, was, there is only one and the same Holy Spirit that is at work in every child of God. There's one spirit. There are not different spirits. We're going to see in the next section that there are different gifts. But just because people have different gifts doesn't mean that they have a different spirit. It is the Holy Spirit who gives variety of gifts to individuals and people. So there is but one spirit. There is one shared expectation that we all have in respect to our calling. There's one hope, one source of confidence, one reason that we anticipate the blessings of eternal life, which is basically a shared salvation. There is but one Jesus Christ. There's one Lord. Ephesians 1, 22 and 23. And he put all things under his feet, gave him head as over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. So there you see that the body that's referring to is indeed the church. And let me just say that those are two different images for the same thing. Okay? So you can look at the church in two ways. You can talk about the church, which in the scriptures speaks of the organization, the people of God, ordain elders in every church, okay? So a church is an organized gathering of God's people. The body speaks of the interpersonal relationship that is not an organized entity. It, 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 it's not about structure, but it's about relationship and, and how we function together. We are a body. We have eyes, feet, ears. We all play a different role. But together, we do the, the work of God, the, the fellowship that we exist. There, there's, there's one body. There's one Lord. And there is one corpus of truth. The faith that is spoken of is the content of what we believe. There, there's one faith. There's one body of truth. Now, notice how that's unpacked in the verses to follow, and uh, we'll look at them next week. He gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, the teachers, to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God. It's talking about doctrinal unity. It's talking about the truth. And you may have heard the statement that doctrine divides. That is the exact opposite of what 
the New Testament teaches. Doctrine doesn't divide. Doctrine creates unity. It is our common beliefs that create unity and that promote the honor and glory of God. So doctrine, teaching, is extremely important. And if you don't have sound doctrine and sound teaching, it's going to lead to disunity. It's going to lead to argumentativeness. It's going to lead to division. It's going to lead to some people saying, I'm after Paul. I'm after Apollos. I follow this teacher. I believe these things. We are to believe the same thing. That is the truth of God's word. That's why our unity has to be based on the word of God. That's what brings us together our shared commitment to the word. Notice 4.13 and following. Until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, craftiness, and deceitful schemes. So it's important that we understand what the truth is so that we don't start becoming wishy-washy, literally, waves that carry us about, winds that affect us and blow upon us, so that we hear something out here, we're taught something here, we listen to something on the radio, and all of a sudden it unnerves us, and, and we don't know how to respond to that, we don't know how to receive that. We're to grow in our faith so that we understand the truth, we can defend the truth, we can teach the truth, we can live the truth. We are a people of the truth. And that holds us together and it gives us the reason of holding together. Jude 3, beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. The faith that was once for all that was delivered to the saints. We're to contend for that. We're to fight for that. We are to struggle to maintain that once and for all. God's truth doesn't change. The doctrines that we believe are the doctrines that are taught in the scriptures. We teach what the Apostle Paul taught. We teach what Jesus taught. There needs to be an incredible amount of wisdom to understand what is changeable and what is changeless. What is it in our worship? What is it in our practice? What is it in our relationships that are changeable, that are reflective of culture, that are reflective of time, and that there's nothing wrong with making these changes and adapting to our culture and 
Paul said he, he's all things to all men. To the Jews, he's to the Jews. To the Greeks, he's to the Greeks. He was willing to adapt, but there were things that were unchangeable. There were, there were things that were non-negotiable. And we have to have the wisdom to know the difference between the two and give people grace in the areas of preferences, but in the areas of truth that is unchanging, say that is true today and forever. And let me just give one more appeal with that in mind, because it's, it's one that, that concerns me greatly. And that is the whole concept of, of tradition, of conservatism, okay? And we need to be careful that we don't present ourselves as just archaic and we have no understanding of the, the day and age in which we live, you know? Uh, we're not driving horse and buggies. And it's important that a younger generation understands that we get it, all right? Technology, whatever, there's nothing wrong with that. It, if it's used correctly, et cetera. And it's important that, that we demonstrate and know the day and age in which we live and, and the experience of others. And we understand and we are with it in a sense so that so that it can be appreciated in the areas where we just are unwilling to change which is preaching the truth that's not cultural our view about homosexuality our view about the authority of scripture our view about the deity of Christ, our view about miracles, our view about salvation, our view about the sovereignty of God, that has nothing to do with the day and age in which we live. That is a truth that is eternal. And we must always stand on those truths and never bend. And we need to understand there's loads of things like dress, like wearing ties, and things that the scripture says nothing about and has nothing to do with eternity, and it doesn't mean anything. Whether I sit here with a tie on or I sit here without a tie on. Whether we're sitting in pews or chairs, none of that matters. Whether we're looking at a screen or singing out of a hymnal, it doesn't matter. But God's word matters. And we need to hold to that distinction and to hold firmly to that distinction. For that is our unity. That's what makes us distinctive. That's what makes us the people of God. So number one, unity is not a shared commitment to one another regardless of what we believe in practice. That's not the unity we're called to. That's ecumenicism. Ecumenicism says, forget about doctrine, forget about whatever, you know, just get along. And uh, in fact, you know, don't, don't talk about those things. That's not the scripture's unity. Two, the unity is a product 
of a shared commitment to the truth of God's word. Ephesians 1.13, in whom you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promise of the Holy Spirit. So it is the truth. Ephesians 4.15, rather speaking the truth in love. Ephesians 4.20 and 21, but that is not the way you learn Christ, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus. Stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth. F. There is one common expression that is given of our commitment of Christ and to each other. There's one baptism. There's one baptism. Romans 6, 3. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized in Christ Jesus were baptized in his death? We are buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. And so that is the expression. That is the outward demonstration. That is our commitment to this truth. And gee, there is only one true and living sovereign God, one God and Father of all who is over all, through all, and in you all. Unity is not a bunch of people coming together to worship a higher power, whether that be Buddha or whether that be whomever. Worship is in spirit and it's in truth. It's worshiping the true and living God. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. And uh, our brother Leroy mentioned Deuteronomy 6 on Wednesday night. And it's our duty to teach our children who our God is and not just say, you can choose for yourself what you want to believe about God. It's our responsibility to teach them who, who God is and the truth of his word and to build them up and cause them to grow and, and to be nurtured in the admonition of the Lord. It is that unity that we're to maintain. And you see, unfortunately, when people divide... And when people splinter off, they move into heresy. They, they move into other beliefs and practices. Why are there so many churches today? Why, why are there so, so, such a plethora of doctrinal beliefs? It's because people have not been able to resolve issues. Pride arrogance, a willfulness, and many times scheming and conniving in which people are actually trying to draw people after them. They want a following. They, they want to be the, the teacher. They want to be the guru. They, they, they want to be the, the spiritual head. And so they create division and siphon people off after them. We're to guard, we're to maintain, we're to preserve, preserve the unity, which is one Lord, one faith, etc. Conclusion. A, the exhortation is that we're to live our lives in a manner that promotes and glorifies the unity that the Holy Spirit has achieved in uniting us to Christ. 
It is that unity that is to be prized and maintained above all else. Colossians 3, 12 through 15. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. This ought to sound very familiar. And if one is complained against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony, and let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. May God give us the tenacity to hang in there. To hang in there. For the sake of the gospel, for the sake of the truth, for the sake of the witness of the glory of God, for the sake of which he has called us. He has called us together as a people, not individually, collectively, so that collectively we can live out the truth of the gospel, which he is reconciling all things to himself, bringing about a change that contradicts all that the world is experiencing because of the result of the fall, all the division, all the heartache, all the misery we're to be demonstrating something entirely different. But that has to be a conscious choice daily. In fact, a constant choice daily. Am I going to let this little thing destroy my relationship to my brother and sister in Christ and my relationship to Christ? What is it that's more important to you than your relationship to each other and to Christ? The answer ought to be nothing. Nothing. And we'll work together to maintain that unity of the people of God to the glory of God and to the furtherance of his kingdom and the proclamation of his truth. Let's pray. Our Father, help us Help us as your people to be eager to maintain, to hold on to a unity that you have already created in bringing us together. And, O oh Lord, may it not be unity at any cost, but may it be true unity of one Lord, one faith, one people of God. Lord, help us for we are a sinful people and it's easy for us to have our feelings hurt and for us to be offended and Lord to hold things against one another help us to be tender hearted compassionate forgiving one another even as Christ has forgiven us for it's in Jesus name we pray Amen